For those who don't know me, I'm Andrew Ziegler. I, uh, I'm a member here. Typically, I'm playing on that weird drum over there, but every now and again, things get mixed up, and I'm up here also. Um, it's been a privilege to work through this passage this week, and I'm excited to, for what it holds for us. As I was study, studying the passage, I was struck by a couple of the phrases that I think are sort of the high points of the verses, and maybe, maybe you heard them too. In the first passage about Aeneas, we hear, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And the second, to already dead Tabitha, Tabitha, arise. We are a relatively young church. There aren't too many of us here who are already beginning to suffer from uh, the physical difficulties of old age, though some may. We're a fairly healthy church. Most of us enjoy good health, though some of us don't. But whether sick or well or young or old, I suspect that most of us find ourselves deeply moved by those words. Jesus Christ heals you. Tabitha, arise. We really do have so much to be thankful for. There's so much good in our lives, and there is so much beauty around us. But for me, at least, those words evoke a deep longing. Jesus Christ heals you. Tabitha, arise. For all the good that we should see in the world, and if we don't, we're ungrateful, but for all that good, for all the blessings we experience in our lives, I think most of us have a sense deep down in our bones that things are not the way they ought to be. The things are not yet the way they should be. There is still so much evil, so much suffering in the world. There's still so much that's wrong with each of us. I don't think you actually even need to be a Christian to realize that. I think you need to be human. And maybe you can dull that sensibility. Maybe you can distract yourself And many of our technologies seem well-designed to try to do exactly that. But I think it's only temporary, that you can't deny it forever. Whether young or old, whether sick or well, we want to be healed. We want to be well. And whether we put it like this or not, I think what we're all longing for is resurrection. Jesus Christ heals you. Tabitha, arise. But what does that sense of longing actually mean? We're hungry, but will we be satisfied? We're sick, but can we be made well? One day we will die. Will we live again? Those are big questions, and I think those are the questions that need to be to the front of our mind as we read this passage tonight we're gonna see that the good news for Aeneas and for Tabitha is good news for us also. And I think the narrative is in some sense pretty straightforward. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna first walk through that and I'll just sort of um, flag the high points of the narrative, but we're gonna spend most of our time meditating on the passage and asking how we can go from something 2,000 years ago, it was clearly good news for Aeneas, clearly good news for Tabitha, 
but how does it apply to us today? What I hope we'll see, where we're going, is that this passage is first good news for the dead, then good news for the living, then finally it's good news for a watching world. Let's get started by looking to the passage. So the past couple weeks we've been looking at Paul, the apostle, his conversion, and immediately after that, this passage turns back to the apostle Peter. We should recall that the church had spread out from Jerusalem, not because they're diversifying real estate, because, but because the church in Jerusalem was under heavy persecution. So Peter is visiting some of these scattered new Christian communities. He's come to see the saints, the holy ones is, is what they're called, who live in Lydda. Now, incidentally, if you've ever flown into Israel, you've probably been to Lydda. Lydda is where Ben-Gurion Airport is. It's about 30 miles from Jerusalem and maybe about 15 miles from Tel Aviv. Of course, in ancient times, that 30-mile journey is not really a trivial thing. Very doable, they walk a lot, but that's a one-day, maybe one-and-a-half-day journey. Um, That's mostly just an aside, but I think one of the things that is so striking about the early church is that they clearly love each other, they clearly are praying for each other across fairly significant geographic distances. I think that ought to be challenging to us, that I think sometimes our affection for our brothers and sisters in other churches is fairly cool. But anyway, let's keep moving. Peter comes to Lydda and sees this paralyzed brother Aeneas. He's been paralyzed for eight years. Unable to move about, unable to care for himself, in many ways imprisoned inside your own body. But Peter, seeing this paralyzed man, knows that he's seen this before. Remember, in Luke 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Jesus tells him, get up and take your mat. So Peter looks at this man suffering for years, lying down on his mat, and tells him, Jesus Christ heals you. And he's healed. He's lying down, then he rises up, and then he takes his mat. These words are Peter's, but the power is Jesus. The power working through Peter by the Spirit is Jesus' healing power. And what happens then? All the people of Lydda see it, and they turn to the Lord. They see this miraculous healing, and they turn to Jesus in repentance. And the second miracle follows the same pattern. Maybe it amplifies it a bit, but it's the same pattern. Joppa, about 13 miles farther west in modern-day Tel Aviv, there's a disciple there named Tabitha. Translated into English, Tabitha means gazelle. Into Greek, it's Dorcas. I think we'll stick with gazelle and Tabitha. But, but that note there, that Tabitha uh, translated gazelle, it's a deeply affectionate note, isn't it? It's as if they're saying, our dear sister, graceful as a gazelle and full of good works, and she did great acts of charity. Well, she's sick and then she dies. The saints in Joppa love her deeply and they send for Peter. They have hope that he can do something. They know that God has already done amazing things through Peter. And so they hope for some more time with Tabitha. So Peter rushes to Joppa. They lead him to where Tabitha has been laid out in an upper room. 
And there are widows who are weeping there because they've lost her. They're weeping and they are showing Peter the garments and tunics that Tabitha has made for them while she was alive. We, we don't know anything really about Tabitha other than these, these very positive words. Whether she's rich or poor, whether she herself was a widow or, or died young, but it calls her a disciple. She's a follower of Jesus. She's a disciple whose love already showed that great fruit in these beautiful, though in some ways very ordinary expressions of her love for these widows. And again, Peter's seen this situation before too. In Mark 5, a synagogue ruler has a sick daughter and pleads with Jesus, Jesus, please come, my daughter is sick. I know you can heal her. Jesus heads over, and while he's coming, she dies. But Jesus goes into the room and sends everybody out and then calls to this girl. This girl not called Tabitha, but called Talitha. Talitha kumi, she, he says. Talitha, arise. It's actually it's just one letter different, and I think we're supposed to say this is an echo. This has happened before. And Talitha arises. She's dead, but she rise, raises to life. And so Peter, again, imitates Jesus. He sends everybody out, like Jesus did. Then he kneels down, prays, and tells Tabitha to arise. And she does. Tabitha was dead, but Jesus, through Peter, raised her up. Tabitha wakes up, then she sits up, then she takes Peter's hand and she rises up. The believers in Joppa get more time with their beloved Tabitha, who knows how many more garments she was able to make. And many in Joppa hear, and many believe in Jesus. Aeneas is healed. Tabitha arises, and the world takes notice. So these are good stories, and they're certainly good news for Aeneas and Tabitha. But what does it mean for us? And just for a second, I want to acknowledge that for some, that might not actually be the pressing question. For some, the pressing question is going to be, it may be a good story, but can we believe this sort of thing? It's, it's a serious question, and it can be a difficult question in this age of scientific inquiry and technological advance, and in some ways, it's just way too big for us to deal with effectively tonight. I think we can say two things, but it's an important question, and pull somebody aside. Uh, we'd love to have that conversation, but I think we can say two things. First is that's a subsection of a much bigger question. If you find yourself believing that God exists, that he's good, that he's powerful, that he loves his creation, well then, miracles shouldn't seem all that surprising. If you don't believe in God, also that determines what you're gonna think about miracles. So again, that's not to solve it. In fact, it's to say that question is part of a much bigger question and ought to be dealt with with respect and we'd love to have that conversation. But for those who do believe, who think this is not a fairy tale but actually happened, says something true, so what does it mean? How does it have anything to do with us? Again, good news for them. How is it good news for CTK Newton, for each of us? Well, I think we have to start by remembering what miracles are. Miracles are not magic tricks, as cool as they are. 
And they're not merely displays of divine horsepower, showing just how powerful God is. They do that, but that's not really what's going on. Miracles are signs. Miracles signify something about God, about who he is and what he's like. We should think of miracles a lot like we think of Jesus' parables. Miracles are in many ways enacted parables. They have symbolic significance that points to something greater than that miracle itself. It means something. So again, we're gonna look at these miracles and try to examine their symbolic weight and what we're being told by them, and we'll see this is good news for the dead, this is good news for the living, and good news for the watching world. So good news for the dead. We see these miracles, and we should be reminded that the only way to be healed by Jesus is to come to him with a full realization of our sins. We come to him through the waters of baptism, the waters of death, repenting of our sins. Okay, I admit that's not actually obvious from the passage, is it? I mean, there's nothing about sin in this passage. There's no suggestion that Aeneas or Tabitha were notorious sinners. In fact, they go out of their way to say what a great person uh, Tabitha was. Tabitha was a very godly woman, full of good works and great acts of charity. Peter is visiting a community of believers. They've already trusted in Christ. So how can this passage possibly call us to repentance? Well, the point is not that Aeneas or Tabitha were dead in their sins, in that sense, at the time of these miracles. But if we understand these as enacted parables, when we observe these two miracles in all their symbolic significance, we see that only the sick are healed. Only the dead are raised up. And then we remember the words of Jesus. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus only heals the sick. He only raises the dead. And we could add, he only feeds the hungry. He only exalts the lowly. He forgives those who recognize and confess their sins. We see Aeneas, as his paralysis left him powerless, without hope, without means to care for himself. We also can only hope to be healed by Jesus if we recognize our own paralysis, that our sin leaves us with no hope for salvation. We are paralyzed. We're powerless in need of a savior. We need to be healed. We need to be rescued. And we won't be healed if we minimize our sin. As Tabitha lay dead and was raised, so our only hope is to recognize that we've no hope in ourselves. We first come to Jesus dead in our sins. He must make us alive. You were dead in your sins, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. But for those who confess their sins, God made us alive together with Christ. So do you want to hear that? Do you want to hear Jesus Christ heals you? I think we see the first step is confess your sins and repent. The first step has got to be acknowledge your sickness, your paralysis. 
Do you want Jesus Christ to raise you up, to give you new life? Without Christ, you're dead in your sins. Jesus only heals the sick. He only raises the dead. He only forgives those who realize they need to be forgiven and come to him in repentance. Now, that's not the last word in the Christian life. If you've been baptized and have repented, you shouldn't consider yourself dead any longer. You shouldn't see Tabitha and say, that's just like me. But it is only through death that we come to life. It's only through a recognition of our powerlessness, our hopelessness, that we can have hope. That brings us to our next point. That was good news for the dead. The next point is good news for the living. For those who have repented, who have died with Christ and already are alive with Christ, we hear this passage as a promise. Jesus Christ heals you. And I think we need to hear that promise in three tenses. We need to hear it in past tense. Jesus Christ has healed you. In present tense, Jesus Christ is healing you. In future, Jesus Christ will one day fully heal you. Jesus healed you in the past when he, the, when he bore the weight of your sins on the cross. And so you don't need to wait for some future time when you can be right with God and approach him in prayer in confidence. That's now. He's healed you. The work is done, and so you also don't need to be plagued by a deep sense of guilt or self-loathing. You should hate the sins that you still do. No doubt, you do still do sins. You should wage spiritual war against them and enlist your brothers and sisters in that fight. But self-loathing is not a strategy for fighting sin. Doubting that God can forgive you is to doubt the worth of Jesus' sacrifice for you. As Jesus healed Aeneas, as Jesus healed Tabitha, Jesus Christ has healed you. Trust him to carry his work through to the end. What God has called clean, don't call unclean. What God has declared righteous, don't call unrighteous. Jesus Christ has healed you. But the work is not done. Jesus Christ is healing you. Now, even today, paralyzed Aeneas rose up to a newly enabled life, free from paralysis. Tabitha was raised up again to continue her good works and make many more garments and tunics and all of that. So we ought to expect the same for us now. And I do think that we see that healing now, not primarily, not primarily in terms of physical healing. Though as the church cares for the sick and the poor, we see some of that too. But I think we see that healing now primarily in the renewed lives that demonstrate that resurrection power of God in our spirit-empowered good works and worship, just like we saw with Tabitha. The physical healings here point to a promise for a deeper healing of our hearts. And remember, that was one of the big points of Jesus' miracle with the paralytic. He first said, your sins are forgiven. Then after an exchange with the Pharisees, then he heals the paralysis. 
The paralysis is a demonstration of a deeper healing that Jesus can effect for us all. And so I think we need to understand that. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is in the process of healing us now. Be hopeful. You're not a slave to your temper. You're not a slave to dark sins. Bring them before Jesus. Confess them to one another and be hopeful. Jesus Christ is healing you. Jesus Christ will heal you. We see here in these two miracles the Christian hope in advance. I think we get this wrong sometimes, but God hasn't promised to snatch us up out of our bodies as if our bodies are some kind of crude thing that ought to be done away with. The Christian promise is resurrection of our bodies. He will redeem our bodies from the grave. He will make us new. He will transform our bodies, make them glorious. The final picture is not a bodiless existence way up in the clouds. There may be harps, but it's not there. We await a day when God raises his people from the dead. And we await a renewed creation. This creation, where heaven and earth are not far apart, but are joined together and reconciled. And God renews and transforms this world. We await a world where there will be no more pain, nor tears, nor sadness, nor paralysis, nor Alzheimer's, nor cancer, nor depression. Nothing bad in that new creation. Jesus Christ has healed you, and he is healing you. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's just a wonderful picture. An eternal weight of glory is what we're waiting for. Jesus Christ has healed you, is healing, and will heal you. So that's the good news for the dead. That's the good news for the living. And so how about the good news for a watching world? I think we ought to see these miracles. We ought to hear this. We ought to hear in it a call to love one another in the church and hope for the expansion of the church, for the spread of the gospel. Again, how so? Did you notice how both of these accounts ended? We come to verse 35 and we read, after Aeneas is healed, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. In verse 42 we read, after Tabitha's miracle, that the miracle became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Acts is about a number of different things. It's a big book, it's an important book. One of the recurring themes that we keep on hearing is the church grows, and it grows, not because it's a time of ease, but there's all kinds of opposition. People preach boldly. The apostles preach boldly, courageously, fearlessly, we could say. Some of them are even killed, but they preach, and the church keeps growing. But it's not just the preaching. We see that the world is being evangelized by a ministry of word, the proclamation. 
and also deed, these signs and wonders. But if we want the growth of the church, that can immediately seem like a problem for us. We want the watching world to come to faith. We want the church to grow. We ought to anyway. But can we follow that pattern? I mean, we can speak boldly, and oftentimes I'm sure we fail to do that. But is that the only thing? The apostles ministered in word and deed with preaching and these miracles that verify the truth of what they said. Are we just left with half of that? Are we all talk and no action? And before you get nervous, I'll be clear, I'm not about to do a miracle up here. I never have. I don't think I've ever seen a miracle. And this is a bit controversial, but the way I understand the Bible, I don't think we ever should expect miracles to be commonplace. Even back then, the very point of a miracle is, is that it's an extraordinary work that points to something else. These miracles here in the early church were not some kind of strange version of Christian healthcare. Stephen still died just a few chapters before, and we don't understand that, we don't hear that he was raised. These miracles are uncommon then and now. So, if we can't rely on miraculous deeds as a typical means of growing the church, what do we do? How is, the world, how is the world going to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead? Well, we still need both word and deed to grow the church. But the ordinary means of doing that is not word and miracle, but word and the fruit of the Spirit seen in the lives of believers. Jesus and Paul tell us as much. Paul first tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Jesus connects that to the growth of the church, or at least to persuasion of people looking. He says that this fruit poured out in the church is what's going to show the watching world that Jesus was sent by the Father. In John 17, Jesus asks the Father that all who believe in him, so all of us, he asks the Father that we would be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And then he has a purpose for this. Hear this. He prays that we be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Word and deed. Jesus prays again that we would be one Again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our oneness, our love for each other, is a sign to the world, a miracle in some sense. Be one in love for each other, Jesus tells us, so that the world may know. The sign to the world that God loves repentant sinners and sent Jesus to save is not typically seen in miraculous healings. It's typically seen by our love for one another. In this congregation, and our love for all the saints. People will have doubts, and I think well-reasoned arguments for the truth of the gospel are important. I think they're very important. 
But Jesus expects that the greatest and most effective defense for the truth of the faith is going to be the visible unity of the church and the love that his followers have for each other. That's, that's proved true in my life. Um, and I'll close with this. I have a really pretty boring testimony, and I'm happy about that, don't get me wrong. I was baptized as an infant, and as far as I can tell, I've believed always. Um, but when I was fairly young, I did have a, what you'd call, I guess, a crisis of faith, maybe 12 or 13, but I think it was real. I wanted all of this to be true, the kinds of stuff we've talked about today, the Bible, God, resurrection, but I had some pretty big questions. I had some doubts. And those questions scared me. It was, wasn't comfortable. It was difficult. The gospel seemed a really good story. But was it true? And I didn't know this at the time. But of course, that's a very common uh, thing to go through in the life of a believer. And I remember reading through C.S. Lewis and some Francis Schaeffer and other uh, clever defenders of the faith. And I think that was really helpful. Honest questions deserve honest intellectual grappling. There's a, there's a big place for that. And so I came to begin to feel comfortable that Christianity really could stand up to those questions. It wasn't all wish fulfillment. But what really gave me renewed confidence it wasn't those books. Again, those were helpful. But it was when I became a part of a remarkable group of believers just a few towns over. When you're in high school and middle school too, I think it becomes really clear that humans are pack animals. We are tribal creatures. And as you become somewhat insecure maybe in, in middle school, you begin to associate with some group of friends and the line between us and them becomes fairly clear, maybe a bit porous, but it's really important to your sense of safety and identity. And so you see things that we call cliques. Um, you see groups unkind to each other. And of course, it's not just high school. It continues on after high school, sometimes in more subtle, sometimes in less form. But group identity formed around economics, class, status, ethnic, educational achievements, that continues, that persists. But what was so remarkable in this group is that that dynamic was largely absent. The variety of personalities was still there. The variety of economic background, of different characteristics, appearance, athletic ability, all of that was still there. But the dominant impression was of love for each other that transcended those boundaries, those ordinary, tribal, social boundaries. And it was the fruit of the Spirit working out in the lives of very ordinary teenagers from a bunch of different backgrounds. Sense was, I love Jesus, you love Jesus too. I suppose we have to love each other then. Christ has been gracious to me. I suppose I have to be gracious to you. I suppose we're brothers. We're sisters. 
if we've both been adopted in Christ. What we have in common in Christ exceeds all that other stuff. Appearance, wealth, intelligence, athletic ability, everything. All of the other stuff that so effectively divides. And that's what it looked like. And by that argument, that sign, I was convinced. And many in that group were saved. Jesus is risen. He's working in his church by his spirit. Can you see it? Can the watching world see it? Jesus Christ has healed you. He is healing you, and he will heal you. By the power of the Spirit, may we more and more become a people of healing, a resurrection people, a church where the watching world sees the power of the Spirit in our lives and takes notice and trusts in Jesus. May God make it so. Amen. Let's pray.